Okay, welcome to a very special three-part edition of uh, the TJ podcast. Uh, I'm talking to Thinky, the digital learning experts, specifically Steve Finch and also Chris Gadd from How to Accelerate Learning. This first part, we're going to be talking mostly about collaborative and social learning, uh, how these things have changed for what will obviously become very obvious reasons in the last 12 months or so, uh, what businesses can do about them, the challenges they face and the solutions that they can offer. So Chris, Steve, thank you ever so much for talking to the TJ podcast today. My first question is about COVID, obviously. Collaborative and social learning, how has COVID changed this? And Steve, how can we continue to learn socially and collaboratively in future? Good question, John. And uh, yeah, thanks for the introduction. I guess COVID has kind of been the stick that has uh, pushed us all online. We've been kind of, I guess, migrating into this environment and using it as part of a blended experience. And uh, yeah, the pandemic has enforced our usage of this. So it's, it's kind of forced high pressure water through the system to find out what's working and what isn't working. And I think that organizations who, who already had embedded um, social and collaborative tools, uh, you know, pre-COVID uh, had thrived. And it was a pretty much a learning curve for, for other organizations who hadn't. Everyone's become dependent on bandwidth and tools. And the tools have matured quite considerably. Um, even during covid We've seen tools such as uh, Zoom and Teams evolve to meet the needs and meet the demand of people doing everything online. But, you know, has this made it a better experience um, socially and collaboratively? I guess the, the jury's out on that one. What's your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, it's been, no doubt, I think, a very, very tough 15 months for, for everybody. There's lots of things that we have missed. Um, but I was just reflecting on this um, today, and, and part of it may be about our mindsets, you know, that um, we've been almost forced into using all of these tools. Um, you know, I started using um, online delivery back in the late 90s or early 90s, actually. And, um, you know, it's taken a long time for us to get to the point where lots of people are using it. But I think there's still some resistance. And it was interesting, uh, earlier this week, I was uh, in a meeting with lots of L&D professionals. Um, and I was just saying how wonderful it was last Friday for me to be back in a classroom um, because it, it created a buzz. And somebody commented about the fact that, well, if you've never had the opportunity if you're a diverse team spread all over the world, then it, it's, it's basically what you do anyway. And so, as you said, Steve, those who are already doing it, it was sort of like business as usual. I think it's for those people who really weren't doing it. We were catapulted um, into doing it and almost forced. And, and there's still, I think, a little bit of a mindset shift about that um, maybe the online experience, you know, being able to collaborate and socially learn with people isn't quite as good as face-to-face. -face. Um, but I'm hoping that I'll be able to reflect a little bit about my experience as well, when appropriate, about, you know, what it was like to get back in the classroom and what effect that had and, and how I might use that to sort of like leverage the online stuff as well. So, I, I, again, I think the jury's out, as you said, Steve, whether it's, it's better or not. I think those people who are used to it, 
you know, carried on and, um, and developed things. But no doubt it's been a steep learning curve for everybody. Yeah, I, I agree that I guess um, the organizations that had been able to use tools before had started implementing it for social and, and collaboration had allowed it to evolve and to iterate and be able to find what works and what hadn't worked as opposed to being forced into it. You know, we've kind of seen almost like an, an A-B test in that we've been forced to do just online and it allows us to reflect on what has, what has been missed, but we haven't had a choice. So as you say, a steep learning curve. Um, you know, I guess initially it's exacerbated the divide between the tech savvy and those who aren't. Um, but that enforced adoption, it's driven and accelerated that adoption. So the less tech savvy have had to become more tech savvy. So, you know, hopefully as a positive, everyone's become more fluent and confident in the usage and the benefits of, of tools um, that would traditionally have supported face-to-face as, a, as opposed to completely um, replaced it. I guess we've been, uh, it's, it's created this R&D lab, hasn't it? And uh, it's clear that, that online can't completely replace face-to-face. Um, you know, we, we've certainly noticed symptoms of diminished team cohesion, which is kind of antithetical to what you would have thought with online and, you know, breaking down distances, allowing people across different locations to collaborate. But um, the teams that would traditionally be collaborating face-to-face, what's the impact that it's had on those? Do you think, Steve, the, um, the gradual move back to the office, and at, at one point we're going to get to an equilibrium of how these things are going to work, and each different, every business's equilibrium will be different, of course. But do you think that going back to the office is going to uh, change collaborative learning for the better or for the worse? Because there are going to be some businesses, I think, which may sort of not unlearn everything they've learned with kind of tech platforms and collaborative learning virtually, but they're certainly not going to want to use it as much as they have been doing. Yeah, we've got to, we're going to find a couple of symptoms, aren't we? We're going to find a little bit of a backlash from people who have had uh, Zoom and Teams overload and going to want to go back and, and devolve a little bit, as it were, as a reaction to it. So we'll see those ripples, won't we? We'll see reaction and then it will settle down. You've also got the contending forces of organizational policy as well in that, um, you know, there's offices um, with leases and things like that to be paid for. So there's going to be an urge from the business to have people utilizing that office space that is being paid for. I guess the more adaptable organizations will find a happy medium because there's clear benefits from, uh, from people working remotely. You know, you think about commute costs and commute time lost. Um, So it's all all trying to weigh up all of those things, but we'll probably see a backlash to that distance and remote and people being isolated and all wanting to get back together again. Uh, Hopefully those ripples will find a healthy balance between what we've learned over the last, you know, 16 months and taking the positives and the good things in terms of productivity, what does work in terms of um, learning and development. And maybe use it as an opportunity to discard some of the old ways of doing things that were just being done by habit. 
And I think there's another point to consider as well, Steve, is um, as a result of the experience, what are organisations thinking about the future? Because um, I'm considering just at the moment the experience that I've had with a um, client of mine. And um, it's a programme I've been running for several years, about five years with them. And we've had to do this um, partly online, partly face to face. And it's not been quite the same doing the online bits there's not been the same amount of engagement and you know so it's made us consider well what is it you know what is it because you know we've tried our hardest to engage people and everything and do we just revert back when we're when it's all open do we just revert back and the response was well actually no because the organization wants to do more of this stuff now now we've got it all installed now we've rolled out teams now we're doing this we want to do more of it where appropriate and so there may be a backlash. There may be, oh, we just want to get it back, um, you know, to, to normal uh, as it was before. But I think organisations have seen the benefits of these things. And so, you know, that backlash will be tempered in some way by the direction that the organisations want to go. And, and cost saving may be definitely one aspect of it. Um, but leveraging perhaps that face-to-face because um, for me sort of the experience of going back in last Friday it was great to see everybody it was great to to be with people the level of sharing in terms of how people were feeling was much deeper than we have done online but these are people who haven't been used to sharing stuff online you know so um, maybe that's just you know the 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 teething problems that they have to get through, they have to get over that because teams who never meet up physically still have to share. So, you know, I suppose my point is that um, what they've gone through isn't sort of almost like reversible in some ways because we've, we've had it, we've done it. And so um, in some ways I feel that there is no going back it's finding that equilibrium is that, that, that Steve was talking about. It's what is the, the balance and how do we balance it out? What's good in terms of the amount of face-to-face versus online, you know? So, yeah, I think yeah. there's no going back. Yeah, really good point because, uh, you know, that enforced usage and adoption of technology has led to investment in it and, uh, and an investment in change of practice. You know, you can't just undo all of that. And those investments have been made and clearly that benefits have been found from it. So it's, uh, I guess the, the backlash will be just that when people can meet face to face, they'll do that and get enjoyment out of it and see engagement. And then it's about dovetailing the two together, finding that blend where that stimulus or that engagement created by the face to face can be used as a catalyst then to drive the, the program or the journey online, perhaps. I think this experience also um, has made us think, gosh, we never imagined that this could happen, but now we've got it in our heads. We've got to sort of um, make sure that our businesses are ready for something similar because we may have to go through it again. And so before we never could imagine this happening. We, we never thought about it, but now we have, you know, organizations will want to sort of almost future-proof themselves so that they are not caught on the hop um, as a lot of people were uh, last year. To go back briefly to the idea of balance and to a lesser degree equilibrium. Um, one kind of, 
paradigm for to, to use a highfalutin kind of word that people have have sort of uh, used as a framework for a long 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 time is 70 20 10 the idea that 70 percent of your learning is experience related 20 percent is uh, learning from others and 10 percent is your kind of formal learning do you think two things really first of all uh do you think the elements of the what's happened in the last 12 months have completely changed or even partially changed that ratio and the way that's split down and do you think it's going to change again as we sort of change our working practices again chris where, what do you think about that yeah 70 2010 always a bit of a contentious thing when people call it a model because it was an observation and again i think we we need to observe i think the the whole thing that's happened you know what's been happening now um is different you know we can't say it's definitely 70 20 10 um now and then we've got to find this new equilibrium that we're talking about so i think it's time for us to observe really and what do we learn from that observation because we can't enforce sort of like we can't enforce learning um and I, I just wanted to make a point there's somebody something somebody said this week which really stuck in my head and it was about um content consumption and people are talking about you know the fact that these platforms you can you can help people um consume the content for learning much quicker and all the rest of it but it made me think much more deeply about what is learning. And when we talk about 70, 20, 10, I, I want to think about real learning, not just about content consumption. And it may be easier if, if we're all online to be able to consume content, but is that really learning? Because for me, learning is much more about behavior change or attitudinal change or you know some increase in performance or something like that. Learning isn't just about you consume the content that is available on the brand shiny new platform we're all now using. So, yeah, I think we need to re-observe and keep observing. And I don't think we're going to really see what that shift is um, until we've been out of this sort of, um, you know, quite a severe period, you know, for some time. So, we've got to keep observing and then see how this impacts learning, you know, not just um, content consumption. That's a, a really good point that 70-20-10 is an observation and not a model. It was a, an observation pre-COVID of typically how, uh, you know, how learning was done and how what percentage split of people's time learning was spent in those different types of learning um, and as you say Chris there's going to be observations from the last 16 months and someone's going to come out with a new observation everyone's going to think it's a model and that we're probably going to see a new range of I guess so-called models that are going to be uh, bandied around that people will probably want to get on the back of so it's a watch this space on that one but I guess the interesting thing of being forced to do stuff online it's making things much more measurable and accountable. So, you know, things done online, things, uh, the data collection and the observation and the analytics that can be done from that are much better. So it makes learning and development more accountable. Um, so as you say, Chris, you know, as opposed to it being about content consumption, you know, that's just one step in a journey you know i guess we're going to talk a little bit more 
about analytics and learning design in in other episodes and this kind of feeds into that but yeah i think one of the benefits of of having to do things online means that we've been given a model and a, well a framework if you will to be able to measure and make learning and development more accountable um, and be able to make more accurate observations and be able to kind of take control of the narrative a little bit more as opposed to it being ambiguous if you know what i mean yeah definitely i'm going to talk more about learning design and both learning design and learning analytics in our second and third episodes but to round off this episode about collaborative and social learning a final question about devices really we are more attached to them than ever <laughs> they've been very helpful they've been diverting they've been you know important for well-being uh, and obviously learning as well but do you think tech has some catching up to do to to deliver proper collaborative learning or or how much how much uh, adaption has has there got to be what changes need to be made to to uh, for our devices to deliver proper collaborative learning uh, virtually remotely online however you want to call it steve let's come to you for that one first well, it's been an interesting one. We've seen technology and social media and apps and tools evolve at such an, a crazy rate. You know, you, humans haven't evolved fast enough to, to actually adapt to it. So we've seen, you know, people glued to their screens, to smartphones, and that need to share content and, and publish and share with the world and share thoughts and ideas and you know, even ones that haven't been considered. So it seems that, you know, sharing and communicating through these tools has, has gone through the roof. So, so that's, that's increased, that, that amount that people share. But what's missing is definitely the, the nuance. You know, it's changing people's behaviors. People adopt different personas when they're communicating or sharing online. And you lose a lot of the, the bandwidth from real-world scenarios, things like body language, things like empathy, um, the ways in which we communicate, all the multi-channels ways in which we communicate when we're talking to someone and looking at them and their body language and their, their facial movements. All of these things are kind of um, diminished somewhat or filtered out, if you will, through the online experience. And also, you know, when we're talking about social and collaborative, when we're doing a group session in, for example, Zoom or Teams or whatever, it's a very linear experience. It's um, one person talking at a time. You know, you're not getting that feedback loop necessarily of the nodding of heads and that sort of thing. You certainly can't, can't see it. So it's a even though we've got this increased bandwidth increased proliferation of tools increased confidence and adoption by people to share and communicate through it we're seeing like a restricted bandwidth in terms of the human element and how humans have evolved through communication so technology is if anything has gone faster than humans have evolved but as as you say um has it actually caught up with the bandwidth that humans typically use in a face-to-face -face scenario to communicate with each other. 
Some really good points there, Steve, actually. We, we talked about this, didn't we, about sort of like sensory bandwidth and what we can deal with in, if we're actually physically with people as opposed to if we are actually on some sort of technology. And what strikes me is that actually, depending on what device you're on, the, the experience can be actually quite different. So um, if you're using a laptop rather than um, a tablet, the, the two experiences, or a mobile phone sometimes, as I've had people doing, the experiences are very, very different. Um, when you think about um, Zoom and how different that was to other online platforms, um, you know, there were very few that allowed the capability of seeing everybody's faces. And so that allowed us to be able to see facial expressions. And so other platforms have sort of um, cottoned onto that and they've advanced. But then it also makes me think about other technologies which never have really taken off to the extent people would like them to, like VR, for instance. It's almost like we're trying to shoehorn that into somehow the learning experience. And, and as we were talking, Steve, I was just imagining, I'm thinking, well, could we use a virtual reality sort of thing, like almost like a holograph? So you could be sitting at your desk and you would be, there'll be like holographs where you could see people sitting, you could pick up on their body language, you could pick up on all those nuances that normally we find not very energy hungry, because it's the, it's the zoom looking at the screen, which t tends to sort of drain us, whereas actually, in reality, if we were all sat around a table, we'd be able to pick up on all these signals quite easily. So maybe it is, maybe it's like a holographic version of VR or something. I don't know. But maybe, maybe we just haven't evolved enough, as Steve said. But also, you know, the, the technology, I guess, gets driven by need, doesn't it? You know, battery technology um, has uh, evolved rapidly because of our desire to have devices that demand more power uh, but need to be small enough to fit in our pockets. So as you say, Chris, uh, you know, there could be technologies that we've already dabbled with that could fill this gap of bandwidth that we're missing. It almost needs a study on what those elements are that are missing and then an experiment with technologies to try and fill those gaps. Um, and it could be technologies that we already have that just haven't been accelerated because there hasn't been the yes. demand. You know, things like holograms and holographic um, representation and VR, it's used in like entertainment industry and stuff. It's been used more and more for simulation. I think until it becomes a truly ubiquitous consumer um, tool, Maybe that will, will drive it. Who knows? But, you know, we've seen kind of false dawns, haven't we, in fits and starts with some of these technologies. It almost needs a killer app to, to, yeah. to drive it forward. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, when you said that, driven by need. I, I think there's two drivers, actually. There's two ways that technology actually comes to the foreground. Sometimes it is by need. Sometimes it is accidental. You've only got to think about, like, the, the post-it note. That wasn't driven by any need. Whoever thought that we'd need bits of paper that we could stick to a wall, you know, that wasn't a need. It was an accident, but, you know, from the glue manufacturers. And then lots of the space-age materials that were used for one thing, but then they... Have, have been adapted to use something, you know, to use in some other arena as well. So maybe it's a combination of the two that, you know, we need this sort of, uh, we need to revisit some of the old technologies like VR and see how it can, can be adapted. But what else is out there that could be combined, you know? And I'm thinking of like, um, you know, there's um, skull caps that people um, have to wear when they go into an, an MRI scanner. 
so that they can pick up on brain waves and stuff like that, you know, those caps. And, and I'm like thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but maybe there's something about that. There's lots of bits of technologies that are out there, but it's finding sometimes it's recombining or reconfiguring them as well. Who knows? Who knows? I guess it comes along with these these interesting times. You know, does it take a pandemic to accelerate some of these things? Um, it, does it usually take some sort of catastrophic world event um, or some sort of a military application that then is used and marketed uh, to, to society? It's usually some significant event that drives adoption of something um, or just virality, I guess. It depends how it's marketed, but it'll be interesting to watch this space. Yeah, you'd like to think that it doesn't have to take a pandemic to accelerate all these changes. But I mean, the, the facts of it are that it has in a lot of cases and and so many more businesses have got on board with digital learning in the last 12 months. They progressed five years in, you know, in the space of one year. And you see it with also, say, vaccine development and the, the research that's been done has, has been fast tracked ridiculously. And so... I think there's more changes ahead and, and more people looking at um, how they can, as you say, Chris, future-proof um, a lot of the work that they do. This is the end of part one on collaborative and social learning. Next time, we'll be talking about learning design. Uh, but for now, Chris and Steve, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you John.